Hey, it's Rebecca. A couple of notes about this week's episode. We'll catch up on some serial-related stuff, but we're also going to be talking about the HBO docuseries The Jinx, as well as the excellent long-form true crime documentary The Staircase. If you don't mind spoilers, no problem. Keep listening. If you're the kind of person who's going to be really mad at us when we talk about what happened in The Jinx and The Staircase, you might want to hit pause right now and come back to this podcast after you watch them. Now, there is a chance, I'm hoping it will come together, that I will be recording a bonus episode of this podcast in the next week or two. It all depends on what happens with Adnan Syed's appeal. And if a special guest close to the case is available to chat with me about it, special guest, if you're listening, I hope we can continue our Twitter chat in real life on this podcast. It would be so great to talk with you. We are producing this show independently, and that isn't free. Renting studio time, ISDN charges, travel, web hosting. If you want to chip in and help us continue making this podcast, go to crimewriterson.com and please make a donation. We've gotten a few requests to add a PayPal option, so I've posted that button on our homepage. And please keep up leaving great reviews on iTunes. We appreciate it so much. That's it for my spiel. Enjoy the show. I'm Rebecca Lavoie, and you're listening to Crime Writers on Serial. This is a podcast about the podcast Serial and the conviction and ongoing appeal of Adnan Syed. We also discuss story crafting, journalism, crime, and trial investigations, pop culture, and this week, some other stuff entirely. So let's change up the music, shall we? With me in the studio today is my true crime co-author and real-life husband, Kevin Flynn. Hello again, Kevin. Hi, Rebecca. Nice to see you after a couple of weeks. I want to give you a special thanks for one thing, Kevin. The number of times this weekend when I cut you off in the middle of one of our debates and said, save it for the podcast. Thanks for your patience when I'm I did that. I'm ready to explode. <laughs> and joining us remotely today from the studio at the University of New Hampshire in Durham is former defense investigator, journalist, true crime author, and finally, premium cable subscriber, Laura Bricker. Hello, Laura. Hello. Thank you for helping me overcome my Yankee frugality. (laughs) Also joining us from UNH is crime fiction author and resident contrarian, Toby Ball. Hey, Toby. How are you? I'm fine. So let's catch up a little bit on Serial. Back in February, we got a big announcement that Adnan had been granted an appeal based in large part on Asia McLean's new affidavit. Laura, I'm curious, what did you think when you heard that Adnan was getting this chance at an appeal? I was optimistic. I was a little bit surprised that it took so long for the court system to recognize that there might have been an ineffective counsel. Um, And I'll be curious to see what happens. What about you, Toby? What did you think when you heard about the appeal potential? I think it's interesting that uh, it seems to come out of having serial be done on Adnan. And uh, it's sort of a – it seems like it's outside the normal system by which you would get an appeal – uh, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, well, that's that's kind of what we're looking at right now. Everything we're talking about today, we're going to be sort of visiting like justice because of media, which is a really interesting, you know, kind of idea. I don't know if it's new, but it's certainly something that's emerging right now. What do you think, Kevin? Well, as Toby brings up, this is um, sort of a gray area because usually in a, in a criminal case, new evidence is considered newly discovered evidence, not necessarily evidence that's been somewhat, you know, had been presented to somebody and never came to light further on. 
So basically, there are three things that could happen with this appeal. Okay, so we've got um, again. This is uh, Adnan was granted leave to appeal. It's basically surrounding, as we said, ineffective counsel. Now, to bring everybody up to date, in case they haven't been following everything on the Googles, um, there are three possible outcomes. The judges could deny the appeal, um, you know, which basically said that the Asia testimony wasn't germane, uh, the defense was, you know, effective. That it, was, that it doesn't matter that she wasn't contacted. It doesn't matter. It wouldn't have changed anything. The judges could accept the appeal and order a new trial, basically overturn the conviction. But if that happens, the state could appeal that decision, and it would go to the state Supreme Court in Maryland. So that, that would drag it out. And there's just sort of this middle ground where the judges could remand the case to uh, the trial court for further fact-finding. So they basically would dig into more of the Asian McLean thing, then find out, come back, um, and decide based on the merits of that fact-finding uh, whether they should decide the appeal. So one of those three things could happen. It's not like uh, there's going to be some action right away. Well, thank you. You're like our resident Nancy Grace today with your legal research. I appreciate it. Laura, I'm curious, what do you think the atmosphere around a new trial of Adnan Syed would be like? What would that look like for us sort of here on the outside of the state of Maryland, just, you know, serial listeners? Well, I think it's not going to be as exciting as you might expect. Typically, appeal cases are argued before the judge or a panel of judges and when you're asking for an appeal. So it wouldn't necessarily be as much of a bombshell courtroom drama as you might expect with the witnesses. Uh, But I certainly think that this would be much more widely covered in the media and get much more attention than it got the first time. And um, we would certainly know what was going on at all times in the case, because I certainly expect that all the media outlets would be there. What do you think, Toby? Is this something that you would sort of watch as someone who listened to the podcast? And, you know, I I know that you, I think of the three of us sort of lean more toward, you know, Adnan not necessarily being like the wrongly convicted innocent. You know, you, you sort of have, I think, less of a shade of gray around it than we do. What do you think the trial would look like? Would you follow it? Would you be satisfied uh, if, for example, he were acquitted or convicted? Do you have thoughts about that? Yeah, I guess I don't have real strong feelings about what kind of outcome. I'm not as much of a court follower as the three of you are, and I think uh, the nuances might be lost on me, but I would probably check out Reddit at the very least. (laughs) It's true, although the Reddit uh, around Serial has basically collapsed in the last few weeks. Not sure if you've been following that, but that's something that I'm hoping to talk about in a special bonus episode that we might record next week. We will see. Kevin, how about you? Do you have any any sense of a trial? How would you feel if I had not got a new trial? Oh, it would be, you know, media-wise, it'd be very OJ-esque. You know, just based on the fact that there was so much media attention ahead of time because of the podcast uh yeah it's definitely going to be on um all of the daytime news programs uh it would be i mean i think we probably would be doing this podcast five times a week uh if that were to occur uh but yeah yeah it definitely would um it would be uh covered very heavily in the media and i wonder to what extent either the prosecution or defense would would feel about that and, w- and whether they'd try to go with no cameras in the courtroom if they could. I think it would be both interesting and appalling to see how people like Nancy Grace would be dealing with this now that it's sort of happening in, in real time. Watching the staircase, you see a little bit of, you know, the effect that that, her in particular, has on sort of the morale of the people who are around a case and the way she kind of presents things and 
that was absent from all that during Serial. It was absent, and we'll, and we'll talk about the staircase in a second, but I, I think that what's, what's really striking about the media around cases now is that very much like politics, you know, there are pundits who have taken a side, and I think we do see that in the staircase. I think we've seen that in other sort of media coverage of other cases that, you know, uh, this is the person who's, you know, pro-innocence, and this is the person who's pro-guilt. And I'm, you know, always thinking, like, I'm pro a new trial. I feel like this was a bad trial, and I certainly have feelings about whether Adnan's innocent or guilty. I think I've tipped my hand there, but um, I, I really, really think a new trial is is something that is necessary no matter what. And where, like, that voice seems to be missing. What do you think, Kevin? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of the major networks have a justice correspondent who, you know, can really sort of... Uh, pull apart what is happening with the process. And I think that's really important. And they could, you know, sort of give a somewhat neutral analysis of what happened in court that day, what the testimony means. But you're right. I mean, certainly on the cable news shows, you often have characters, and maybe I shouldn't call them characters, probably not journalists, but characters who do advocate for one side or another. They play a role. And um, I guess they go with what they think the audience wants to hear. They always want the bad guy to get his. And so they push that narrative. And that's, you know, kind of what um, pushed some of these high-profile documentaries, serial among them, is that, you know, you have a certain bent uh, not just following what happens with the court case or with the criminal investigation, but you, you're emotionally invested in the defendant. Well, originally Adnan's brief was going to be filed today. Uh, that didn't happen. The deadline was delayed another week. After that is filed, there's a good chance I might be speaking with some folks close to the case. If I get that chance, I will certainly loop you all in. And then in that episode, maybe we'll catch up on the latest with the former Intercept journalists, Natasha Vargas Cooper and Ken Silverstein and their antics, the collapse of the once vibrant Reddit community around Serial, our friend Kevin Urich's television interview no-show. But for now, I want to make a transition. The things we were hoping to touch on, but one of them has pretty much hijacked, I think, all of our brains this morning. That is Andrew Jarecki's six-part HBO docudrama, The Jinx. It aired its final episode of Six last night. Anyone who's listening to this, I I put a disclaimer in the beginning, so if you haven't watched it, Jarecki in 2010 made a film called All Good Things. It was inspired by this real-life case about Robert Durst. After that film, Durst contacted Jarecki, offered him an interview, and this turned into the six-part documentary. We're also going to be talking about The Staircase. That's a 2004 documentary that's been getting a lot of play lately for a few reasons. I think, Laura, you haven't finished The Staircase. No, I haven't. Okay. So uh, has eight episodes, another one which was made later. It's remarkable for a variety of reasons. That is about the murder trial of novelist Michael Peterson, whose wife Kathleen died in 2001. It was directed by a French film team led by uh, Jean-Xavier Lestrade. So I want to bring The Staircase and Jinx back into serial for a minute. I want you to talk, Laura, about your take on the storytelling of those projects, you know, how they compare, how they don't compare with what Sarah Koenig did in Serial. Um, did you make any ties there or were they just very different for you? They were somewhat different in that I felt like, obviously, with The Staircase, we had direct access to the entire family, um, to the defense team. And with Jinx, um, it was more, I felt, told sort of out of chronological order. The way I looked at it was sort of looking at it as who was the narrator and sort of this concept of a reliable 
versus an unreliable narrator. And so I was looking at Robert Durst, and he gives just enough of the truth to make you want to think he might be telling the truth by saying things, you know, you know, I didn't kill my neighbor, but I did dismember him, and things like that to sort of draw you along into believing his story. So I looked at it as these characters as narrators, and whether I found them credible or not, and also, you know, how their story was parceled out by the directors, which also played into that. Right. Well, Toby, you sent me a note, and to be fair, this was before the finale last night, before we heard about Durst's arrest. Uh, you said that you you thought Serial was more successful at provoking conversation uh, when some of these other true crime pieces weren't. Why is that? That's a good question. I mean, I, in some ways, I felt like, and I, and I guess I still feel like, that Jinx was you know, it was very packaged. One of the things with Serial being sort of a week to week and, you know, she was gaining new information as we went along is that you're constantly left in these situations where, you know, there were things that, that were there to debate and you had a strong feeling that nobody actually had the answer. Like you're mostly talking about opinions and you weren't going to tune in next week to Serial and be like, oh, well, here's the real answer and then somebody's right and somebody's wrong. It seemed like these things were really sort of in play, whereas with Jinx, after last night, my opinion, I guess, is a little less strong, but it seemed as though he was more in control of his material. Like, he had all the material. When the first episode was out, all the material was already there. So you you got the feeling that questions that he was going to ask were probably going to be answered at some point. And Staircase, you know, I, I felt like Staircase was a lot more like Serial in that it seemed like there was a lot of things to talk about, and there were so many sort of crazy plot shifts that uh, seemed wildly improbable that I think that had quite a bit of room for discussion. In the end, I kind of came out of sort of experiencing all three of these with with more respect for Sarah's sort of storytelling technique in that I think she ended up with less sort of bombast that she had to deal with and still made it, I think, the most compelling of the three series. Then The Staircase was a very straight documentary, Kevin. There was no narration. There was very little production in terms of, like, music and added elements. There were no, like, anvils dropping from the sky. This is going to be important later kind of stuff. There was no signposting. At no point during The Staircase did someone say to you, the viewer, this is going to be important later. You know, watch. There's no reenactments. Though, no reenactments. Right. Um, it was just footage, interview footage. I know that you loved the staircase. I'm curious as to what you thought of that form versus Jinx, which was highly produced, very stylized, awesome theme song, as we heard a couple minutes ago. Reenactments, you know, graphic design. What, what did you think about this? The effectiveness of those two forms. I thought um, I, for both Serial and The Staircase, I was surprised at how emotionally invested I was in the defendant. Mm-hmm. And you know, for somebody who writes true crime, and the narrative arc is usually that um, there is a bad guy, and we're going to find out why he or she did it. I think the stakes are so much higher now. I I believe this now. The stakes are so much higher now when you believe that you have somebody who is innocent and is facing time behind bars. And Laura said this in a previous podcast that she's experienced this, that there's no worse feeling than you've got – uh, a defendant who you just know is innocent, and the, you know the pressure is on. And so, to watch the end of episode eight 
of the staircase, which is devastating. And, you know, it's like I didn't want to watch episodes 9 and 10 after right. that. But right. I did, of course. Uh, another point I just want to point out that Laura made that I thought was great was this idea about the the unreliable narrator. And, you know, we, we've seen this in a lot of great fiction, like, you know, Fight Club, The Sixth Sense. And in nonfiction, in, in, in drama, it's really interesting because, like Robert Durr says, nobody tells all the <laughs> truth all the time. And so you really don't know if Michael Peterson from The Staircase is on the level all the time. You don't know about Robert Durst if he's on the level all the time. I'm curious to know what you, Laura and Toby, thought about Michael Peterson. Um, uh, you know, if, if you're listening to the podcast, you haven't watched The Staircase, there's a big twist that kind of comes, I think it's in the second or third episode, where uh, Michael Peterson has been arrested for his wife's, his beloved wife's murder. It's like very clear to the viewer immediately that these two are very much in love. All the kids say that. Everybody who knows them says that. And then you find out that he's a bisexual. And the question sort of surrounding his case is, is this a secret that he kept from his wife, Kathleen? Is was this the, the motive? Did she discover it? Is that why he had to kill her? And that sort of becomes like the heart, I think, of the prosecution's case, whether or not he's believable, whether or not he's telling the truth. That and another death, which happened years before that people thought he may have had involvement with. I'm curious as to what you guys thought of Michael Peterson, you know, as the... I don't know, as the potential murderer. I mean, Laura, you're still in the middle of the series. Where are you on Peterson right now? Um, I have to say, I waver back and forth on Peterson. I actually like Robert Durst better really? than I like Michael Peterson. I'd like you to talk um, about that a little bit. There's something oddly charming and eccentric about Durst mm-hmm. that, you know, I know he's probably a serial killer, but at the same time, I find myself feeling badly for him. Whereas with Michael Peterson, I just... I'm still really trying to get a read on him. In some episodes, I think he lays it on so thick. He's so dramatic with the crying all the time and the pacing around with his pipe. And I haven't really come to believe in him yet. Uh, I did read up about the owl theory today, and that did change my tune a little bit. But as far as how he's being presented in this show, he's not really got me convinced yet. Right. So a little more about the owl theory. If you're interested in getting an update on the Michael Peterson case, listen to the first episode of a great podcast called Criminal. It is actually about this case and a new theory which has been floated in the last couple of years that Michael Peterson's wife, Kathleen, really died because of wounds from an attack from an owl. I told you there were going to be spoilers in this podcast. Do not complain about my having just it's said that. It's your own fault. <laughs> no, it's Toby's fault for spoiling True Detective. So I'm telling you. Ago. You <laughs> so, kind listener, it's your own fault if you've been spoiled. There should be a the statute of limitations on spoilers. The Staircase came out in 2004. I think the statute of limitations is passed on that. But nobody even heard of it until like two months ago. Okay, Toby. So we just, so we, we just heard Laura say that she had some affection for Robert Durst. I'll admit it. There were moments I did too. I think he delivered the best piece of dialogue in the entire series when he is, is asked, you know, does he know why his uh, brother Doug has hired a bodyguard? And, and what does he say, Kevin? Because my brother's a pussy. <laughs> Toby, did you find Durst uh, at all compelling as a, as a person, as a character? I, I, he was definitely compelling. I mean, he, he just seemed to me very damaged. It was hard not to see him as, at some point in his life, being more of a victim than a perpetrator. And then, of course, that changed. It, it just seemed like there was a lot of stuff going on with him. Like, it seemed at times he, he sort of desperately wanted to get caught. At other times, he was, you know, desperately trying to get out of whatever he'd gotten himself into. But, you know, you know, shoplifting a sandwich from Wegmans, saying, okay, you know, you can do a multi-million dollar 
documentary on me when he, I guess, would know that he's guilty. It just seems like there's a big sign out there saying, catch me. Well, here's the question, because I also found myself very sympathetic about the way his family treated him and ostracized him. And But I, I kind of wondered at the end, is it a chicken or egg scenario? Was he crazy and that's why his family ostracized him? Or did he become crazy because his family marginalized and ostracized him? What do you think? I, I would guess it was more his family's effect upon him. And I think seeing his mother die was probably – I mean, I don't want to be a, a you know pop psychologist, but – I, I didn't like the way they used reenactments mm-hmm. in in this. I thought the only one that had any way that you could really say there was a justification for it was when they show the mother fall and you sort of get this sort of visceral sense of how horrific it would be to be however old he was and, and see your mother die. So, I, you know, I don't think that can happen to a young kid without there being some lasting effect and then sort of being ostracized on top of that, I would imagine it leads to a sense of victimhood. But here's the thing, Toby, and I'm going to ask you what you think about this, Kevin. We got that reenactment from Durst's story about what happened. And Which we, is so weird. We both thought that was a very strange telling of that story, right? Yeah. I mean, talk about unreliable narrator. The way he told it in the interview was that in the middle of the night, his father gets him and says, come look at mommy. And he, like takes him to the window and it's like, hey, there's mommy on the on the roof. Now watch her jump. You know, that was Very that's really peculiar. You know, we talk about, um, you know, who do we like out of these three defendants? And I, well, certainly the jury in Galveston thought Robert yes. Durst was charming. That was shut. The Texas jury acquits an East Coast gajillionaire of a murder that he admits committing. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, that New York media is coming to get him. So that was probably, you know, what drove him to just dismembering. Michael Peterson is peculiar. But hey, we're four writers here. So who the hell are we to talk? There's a writer there that's a little weird. OK, <laughs> uh, but Adnan, I think, is obviously the most sympathetic of the three defendants that we look at. Uh, we've got just as much time you know, with Adnan as we did with Michael Peterson. And uh, we definitely thought that, you know, I think all of us think that maybe he uh, is perhaps the most human. One last thing on Durst, which didn't come up in the jinx, but was part of his defense in Galveston, is that his attorney said that Durst has Asperger's. Now, if you look at his behavior and his blinking and sort of the way that he talks, a lot of people are trying to figure out, is he crazy uh, for doing that, if you look at through the lens that he may be on the autism spectrum, maybe some of those um, behaviors seem to fit a different kind of narrative. Uh, certainly, it d- isn't an excuse for for any s- sort of murder, but just sort of the twitching thing where you're like, "This guy's really weird." That, that might be the blinking, w- the blinking, and the way you know, with the burping, the, the and the hands, and the you know, very, and also being very just sort of straightforward. And he's like, "Well, I mean, the the quote about nobody tells people the truth all the time, and it, you know, when he's showing them the the handwriting samples, and it's like, I can, you know, the police would say this." And that the way he says that is almost is a little Rain Man like he is saying the thing that 
out loud that, you know, you're thinking. Well, I, I wanted to ask Laura a question because I think that you were struck by something that sort of differed between these three presentations of crime stories. In Jinx, there were sort of some surprising points of access to people close to the case that deviated. At the beginning of the series, it was just the very typical, like, friends of the of the victims talking, saying she was a wonderful person, we want justice. But then you sort of got, you know, the cops in Texas, and then you got, you know, the stepson of one of the victims. And then you sort of started seeing a little bit more access as the series progressed. I think in uh, Serial, the access was really limited to whomever chose to participate. But in The Staircase, the access was, I mean, every episode, every scene where we sort of saw someone else talking, they got it all. What did you think of that when you saw that, Laura? I mean, they had the jury on film. They were talking to the prosecutors. They were talking to the family. They were in the strategy meetings with the defense team. When you saw that unfolding, you know, in your work in defense, what did you think of all that? I was just absolutely astounded at the amount of access. I mean, obviously, he must have signed some sort of disclosure agreement early on in the case. And I was surprised that his attorneys would have been comfortable with that, even given that he must have had to sign some sort of a release giving permission for the film crew to be there. It did strike me as a little bit, um, I don't want to say suspicious, but curious that a French film crew, uh, you know, arrives on scene soon after this case is breaking, gets instant access to all of these people. You know, for me, I really enjoyed watching it. I have to say, I give a shout out to the fact that there was a defense investigator But it was, I think, for people that haven't been inside that part of the criminal justice system like I have been, um, really eye-opening to see that regardless of the crime and the charges that the people are facing, this is a real person and he has a real life and a real family. And I think it really um, helped show that it's not as black and white as people might initially think if they're seeing something on TV. But I still am very curious as to how this film crew heard about this case and how they got that level of access. There were allegations of of, uh, trial slash prosecutorial slash evidentiary, uh, you know, presentation in the courtroom misconduct. And it actually is what ended up leading Peterson to get his appeal. That is something that that, that the Peterson case and Adnan's case have in common. And, you know, Toby, you sent me a note earlier about uh, documentaries now functioning as extrajudicial appeals. You're talking about Paradise Lost, The Thin Blue Line, Serial. Do you think that now when people are going into these projects— they're thinking that rather than just looking at the process and maybe what went wrong here. They're thinking something has to come of this. Yeah, I think if they want to have a really successful one, they do. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I think if they didn't have the payoff in Jinx, do you think HBO would have promoted it to the extent it did and really made it sort of a centerpiece of, of their season? If it had ended up more like Syria, well, well, you know. It's kind of hard to tell. He's kind of kind of a crazy old guy, and it seems like he did, but maybe he didn't. I don't think it would have been pushed so hard. So it might go back to Hoop Dreams, where they started following two young basketball players, and then the way their stories kind of diverged was so compelling, and I think they, they kind of lucked out in some ways. But that kind of set the, set the standard for these kind of following cases or people's lives or whatever, in that if there isn't some kind of epiphany or some kind of reversal of fortune or something, that what you have might be nice, but I don't know if it's 
palatable to a broad audience. Have either you or Toby uh, or Laura, have you had anybody, like, um, have you interacted with anybody who is interested in adapting any of your work uh, for a film, a television movie, or a movie, or anything like that? I, I have. Yeah, I know you have. <laughs> we have. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I haven't. You know, yeah, I, I haven't. Well, the, the, thing, the thing that I think is interesting is that that's the question they always have is, do you have something that no one knows? And mm-hmm. I think that sort of plays into the ethical questions. Yes, where, it's in the book. but but the thing I mean Laura here's the thing that I really found interesting about the jinx because um the first three episodes, and I, I think we talked a little bit about this by, about email, whether or not we were going to talk about it. The first three episodes, sort of like very conventional true crime storytelling. Yes, they had Durst, and that was interesting. And then I was halfway through, and I thought, well, I may as well finish this. The fifth episode, a huge revelation, new evidence. The sixth episode, the final episode, totally broke format. The crew turned the camera on themselves. You saw Jarecki being nervous about questioning. It was a huge format break. It ended up being, to me, very suspenseful. Laura, did you like the format break? Do you think it worked? Do you think it was a, like a very solid way to, to sort of end things? Or is, is that something that you would like to have seen earlier in the series? I'm just curious to know what your thoughts about the storytelling format, the way they did that arc. For me, it actually really worked. I was quite surprised. Like you, I was kind of watching along in the beginning of this, and I'm like, oh, yeah. I guess I could go either way on this series. You know, I'm I'm fascinated by Durst. I want to psychoanalyze him and figure out why he is the way he is. But I have to tell you, when I was watching the last episode of this show, I started to get butterflies, like legitimate butterflies, as I was watching them discuss how they were going to slip the envelope into the photos and when they were going to ask him. And I, as I sat there waiting and waiting for it to happen, I really was quite nervous. And, and then when he went in the bathroom, I think I actually yelled out and woke up everybody in my house because it was just so <laughs> unexpected. Well, it was unexpected. And I related to Jarecki in those scenes because, you know, when Kevin and I write books together, he's been a reporter for a long time. I have not. And when I'm put in a difficult position where I have to talk to somebody and I think it's going to make me uncomfortable, I do exactly what Jarecki did, right, Kevin? I'm like, hey, can we rehearse this? Like, Yeah. Well, I do that too. I mean, those aren't always easy. Yep. It's it, The toughest thing usually is approaching you know, the family of someone who's lost somebody or something, something uncomfortable like that. Or, or you know, sitting down and let's talk to you about um, the thing that you did. Uh, so that's, yeah, that's um, that's difficult to do. You know, what I th- thought here about serial versus jinx was, you know, the expectation of the audience. Right. And, um, you know, with serial... You know, Sarah Koenig says, you know, we're going to look into this. And although she never says this explicitly, the audience is left with the idea that at the end of these episodes, something is going to happen. You know, there's going to be the smoking gun and and Adnan will be exonerated or, you know, definitely put away. And so the ambiguity was something a lot of people talked about with, with Serial. Now, with Jinx, it really started off looking like your typical stylized biopic. And I don't think anyone had any expectations that this was a hard-hitting interview piece or a hard-hitting investigation. And I definitely don't think that these filmmakers went into this with saying, we're going to get him now that he's calling. You know, it was just he was out of the blue. You're doing this movie. I want to sit down and talk. They thought this would be a great, you know, next thing to do. So the, the idea that at the very end you have this moment where they blow it wide open is just so unexpected. It is the opposite expectation. I should say, you got to the end of episode five, and they come up with this matching 
um, you know, the handwriting, and all of a sudden you're like, oh my God, what is going to happen in this last episode? The difference there is that you were expecting one thing and you got the other, and it was, you know, it, it, here's here are the, the two opposite cases. I really think the jinx is the Frost Nixon of true crime documentaries. I'm, I'm, I, I'm just saying the unexpectedness mm-hmm. of, the, of, the, of the, the one big takeaway line, we just never saw that coming. You, you think it is right now, but there are questions about how it was done. I don't know. They might, they might change your mind. Toby, I just, before we get to the questions part, can you just tell me sort of how you reacted in that moment when Durst went into the bathroom and, and we heard him having that dialogue? Were you, were you on the edge of your seat? Oh, yeah. No, I thought it was great. The last episode, I kind of wish the rest of it had been more like that, mm-hmm. quite honestly, because the rest of it I kind of felt was, was extremely conventional. You know, I think part of what Serial did very well was kind of raise the curtain a little bit on the process. I think it would have been better to see a little bit more of his process. I mean, because it's, it's, very, it's very slick, yeah. <laughs> basically, almost the, the entire rest of the thing. But it's also, you know, it, it was interesting in that it played out – sort of like a fiction movie in that earlier, like I don't know if it was the second episode or third episode, he's got the hot mic and, he, and he's rehearsing how he's going to say the next line when they, when they go back to the interview. And so it's almost like they, they kind of set it up there. Yeah, that you. was an anvil that we now can realize and look back on. That's why they did that. Yeah, it kind of makes me wonder, when they started this, was it just going to be like a two-hour thing kind of following up on this movie they made. And then when they got this, it was like, okay, well, we, we could definitely turn this into a six-hour event. Um, Something someone will buy, like HBO. Right. Right. Or, well, he does um, He does make a journey, I think. He's sort of like filmmaker. We discovered last night he co-wrote the theme song from Felicity, a friend of J.J. Abrams. He could become sort of an unwitting documentarian. And then in the series, we see him becoming a sleuth and then maybe playing journalist at the end, Kevin. Like you're dying to say something. No, I just uh, you, you know talking about these um, three as procedurals. Serial was a reporter's procedural. We watched uh, Sarah do her work. Uh, the staircase is a lawyer's procedural, primarily a defense lawyer's procedural, and they pulled the curtain back on that. Um, with uh, the jinx, it, it wasn't really either until the very end. One of the rules of writing is to do something unexpected. Right. Your character should do something unexpected. And so the break of format and the idea that, oh, shit, we might actually have something here. I, I think even going into episode six and you're thinking, hey, you're, it's going to be about the handwriting. And it was kind of a letdown. He just kind of went, eh. And then to have this moment that they say they found months and months later. All right. Well, let's, let's just talk about that. We have to get it out there. Big difference between Serial and The Jinx. Serial is being produced in real time. If Sarah discovered something and then she vetted it, we learned about it. This movie was and has been in production for years, and there's a lot on the web today about the timeline and how the timeline was manipulated in the series. The really most, the most stunning thing, it's a combination, I think, of a New York Times piece and a Gawker piece, that that interview with Robert Durst that we saw at the end actually took place a full year before he was arrested for stalking his brother. The timeline was manipulated, which means that this filmmaker had in his hands evidence in a murder case for at least two years. Now, Laura, let's just pretend for a second that Jarecki is a reporter, not a filmmaker, not a documentarian. Let's just pretend he is just a journalist. What? Where do you stand on the, I know this guy murdered three people, I have evidence that looks like it proves it. What do you do? I have to say, you know, I've 
been in a situation as a journalist where people wanted my notebooks or my notes or my material. And what I was always taught to do was not to turn over my materials to the police or the prosecutors. Um, you know, we are independent. We are journalists. We are not agents of the police. And it's not necessarily even just the police. It's anybody that might want your notebooks. You know, I was subpoenaed to federal court in Boston once to testify uh, on behalf of OSHA based on some photos that I had taken of something that was going on. And my newspaper fought that subpoena, and they fought me testifying. Um, they very clearly made the point that, you know, it was not my job to prove their case. And so I, you know, obviously, Jarecki is not a journalist by profession. He's a documentary maker, and he doesn't come from that background. But I wouldn't have turned it over, even though I know ethically, you know, morally, you might feel like you should. They can they can read your story. What do you think, Toby, when you, when you sort of think about how this played out? You know, Jarecki had this evidence. Um, Jarecki claims he discovered this audio months later. I will tell you, as somebody who produces radio and somebody who's been on a bunch of true crime documentary TV shows, that the audio is always rolling and they're looking at the waveform the whole time. Someone's looking at that monitor. If he was talking in the bathroom, it's hard to believe that they discovered it months later for me is what I'm saying. But who knows if that's true or not. But, Toby, I'm just curious to know, where do you land on the ethics of all this? Well, I guess I agree with Laura in that with him not being a journalist, I think it changes things a little bit. You know, I don't think he had sources he had to protect in in this instance since it was just audio of, of Durst. So I, I don't know Jarecki. I don't know much about him. My sense from watching it was that if he held on to it, it was so that he could have it for his bombastic, uh, you know, his his show. For, um, to be able to sell the documentary to HBO. Is that what yeah, you're thinking? Yeah, exactly, now? exactly. And, you know, I'm sure he had his fingers crossed that Durst wouldn't go and kill somebody else in, in the meantime. That's, but. that's the question. This is somebody we know, had a, his brother had a restraining order against him, and he violated it. We know that he very likely killed three people. Does that change the picture for you at all? What do you think, Kevin? Um, well, you, you know, I mean, there's just a lot of talk on the Internet of a likely story that, you know, that, uh, the timing of the arrest and the fact that, you know, they said they found this little bit later. He he may be a, a documentarian. He may not be a journalist by trade, but um, the First Amendment still applies to him and the protections uh, that uh, the First Amendment supplies to journalists still apply to him. I, I would have just not told anybody and, and ran it. Mm-hmm. They took that letter and they stuck it in a safety deposit box, one they didn't want anyone breaking in to get it. I think they seemed to realize what they had. The fact that you could, you know, not hear the sound with the video is that when they're doing multi-camera like that, they're they are not recording the sound on the visual, on the video part of the tape because they're dealing with multiple cameras. Mm-hmm. That sound guy is running something completely different, which is why they sync up. It's why they have that clapboard. Yep. So, uh, yeah, so it's not a digital, it's very much a, uh, you know, a pouch with a VU meter and some stuff in it, and they just go, go, go. So all the video cameras could be off and the sound could still be running. Right, no, I, I know that. And that's what they say. Yes. And I, and I think, and I, I have no reason to doubt that. Right. Um, should they have, you know, turned it over at, at, at some point? I guess they did. I never. I wouldn't have. I would have just gone with it because by the end of of episode five, if, you, if you're a detective and this is your case, you better be watching all these episodes. You know, you don't want. Hey, Bob. 
Yeah, the interesting thing about last night in that episode, what? Oh, oh, the case that I'm working on for the past ten years. Oh, I, I missed it. Yeah. I'll just, I'll, I DVR'd it. I'll get to it on Wednesday. Certainly, he says he worked with the police since 2013, so it undermines this idea that the police but got onto the, it because the, of the, the timing of when he does that is extremely important yes. because if as soon as they do that, they can be considered as acting as agents of the state, as agents of law enforcement. Then that changes the admissibility of any of that evidence. I just want to throw out a quick anecdote. Right before we came in to tape this, I was in the newsroom. Um, I was talking to our news director and our senior reporter here and posed this exact question to them. News director, who I admire and respect, said, you know what? If I knew he'd killed three people and could kill more... I think I may have to work with a cannon over the cops. The senior reporter, who I also admire very much, said, no way. Uh, I would lock it down, and I and, they, and the police could learn about it when I wrote my story. So <laughs> I guess that there's, you know, it's, it's not, I think, there's no golden rule, right? I mean, it's just sort of... And this is what he decided to do. And apparently now he's not talking right now. So I guess we won't find out for a while what actually happened. Um, So one last question about this. And then I just want to go to one final thing before we wrap up. Uh, Laura, you and I have talked about the fact that we love the journey. Satisfying ending is not as important. But man, does this one have a satisfying ending or what? Um, Are you swayed at all? Do you you now think that the ending is is a little more important than you thought it was? Or, Or would you have been okay with the whole series having been as good as episode six and then gotten nothing out of it. What's your take on that? I think for me, this ending just totally made this series, like Toby was saying before. Um, You know, I was struck by how satisfying this ending was. I was talking about it with people at work this morning. Uh, You know, in the beginning, it was almost, I said, this is almost just too good of an ending. It almost didn't seem like it could be possible to me, more like it was, you know, fiction, um, the way that it all played out over the weekend with his arrest on Saturday, and then, you know, neatly wrapped up with a bow with that last line in the bathroom. It really made the series for me. You know, I do enjoy the journey. I am really enjoying the journey of going along with the defense team in the staircase. Um, you know, they have resources that I didn't used to have when I did <laughs> millions that kind of, work of resources, with experts and things like that. <laughs> but um, as for the as for the jinx, um, the satisfying ending made the entire series for me. What do you think, Toby? Uh, I think if you're not going to have a satisfying ending, the journey's got to be really, really good. And I thought serial was that. Um, I don't think. The Jinx was good enough to be good without having a great ending, which it did. So, you know, I think that really that really saved it. And Kevin? I thought that the Jinx would still have been a very good you know, miniseries, even without that fantastic ending. You know, the the whole Durst story is, is, you know, it's big in New York and it's big in Los Angeles, but it's actually... A local story there. There's not a lot of people in between the two coasts who know the Durst story, as juicy as it is. And so for me, I'm like, oh, this is a re- this is a really interesting story. How come I never knew this before? It was great to kind of hear it in his words. And in, in my own mind, I'm thinking the last episode is going to be one of those, you know, he walks off into the sunset and we'll just never know about this creepy guy. I, I was blown away. So even if it had ended there, I still would have said, hey, that's great. I wouldn't say it's the you know the Frost Nixon of uh, of true crime biopics, but um, you did say that earlier. I did. I wouldn't. I wouldn't have said it. <laughs> oh, okay. If uh, you know, if it was just you know that, right? If it ended at you know episode four or midway through episode five, but uh, yeah, the unexpected, powerful nature of of the way it ended, and, and the fact that it also, it, you know, the the real time aspect here, kind of like serial, was that 
he was arrested within hours of that last episode playing. And I guess the reason why he was he left Houston and was sort of milling around New Orleans is that people saw the end of episode five. And now they were interested in finding him to interview him. What's his reaction? He was sort of, you know, pushed out of his, uh, you know, his relative comfort for the past two years since giving the interview. And, and now he's, you know, thinking about getting on the run. Yeah, maybe going to fake Madrid all over again. <laughs> maybe Barcelona. <laughs> okay, so before we wrap up, a little feature that I'm hoping you'll all grow to love. I want each of your 20-second reaction to what I'm going to throw out at you. It is time for the crime of the week. The biggest crime, arguably, in New Hampshire history, at least media-wise, was the Pam Smart case, the first televised trial, sensational trial. This week, huge news in that case. Billy Flynn, the shooter in the Pam Smart case, was released on parole. The parole board said he'd been a model prisoner for all the time he's been in prison. I would like each of you, in a sentence or two, about 20 seconds or so, Give me reaction to Billy Flynn's parole. Do you think Pam Smart got a fair trial? Does it matter to you? Toby, go. I was not living in New Hampshire at the time. I don't know a whole lot about it. I saw the movie with Nicole Kidman. I think he was like 18 when he was put away, and he's been away for how long? Like 25 years. So he spent more than half his life after being manipulated by an adult as a teenager. I mean, I think it's, it's probably good that he's out. Okay, Laura, what do you think? You were a Seacoast person. You probably, I don't, I don't know what your proximity was to this case when it was all going, but Billy Flynn paroled in the Pam Smart murder. What do you think? Um, I'd say good for him. You know, like Toby said, I, I just, I, I did feel sympathy for him. I mean, he is obviously young and impressionable. And, uh, you know, that picture of Pam in her little um, lingerie was going around the internet last week after his parole board hearing. She clearly manipulated him. And obviously, yes, there was a murder and he did something he should not have done. But it's time for him to have another chance. And, uh, you know, I think that, you know, Pam is probably where she should be. But uh, it's a case that continues to fascinate people. And I'll be curious to um, hear what happens now that he's out, if there's going to be some interviews with him. Kevin, what do you think? Did Billy Flynn get paroled? Is that a good thing, bad thing? Did Pam Smart get a fair trial? What do you think? Well, I got to go pick up my cousin at the prison, I guess. <laughs> no, actually, Billy <laughs> Flynn is not related to Kevin Flynn. Um uh, yeah, okay. In my opinion, if he truly is a model prisoner, he served 25 years. Uh, that seems to be a fair uh, debt to society. I, I think then, then parole is probably appropriate here. Those people who have uh, watched Captivated, The Trials of Pamela Smart, another HBO bio. A really fun documentary. Uh, fun, completely different than The Jinx. <laughs> um, you know, there are people, you know, those filmmakers make the case that Pam didn't get a fair trial. Uh, they point to a lot of the media hype around it. I, I will say that I think that in this country, you are entitled to a fair trial. You are not entitled to a perfect trial. And I think although there was some sort of a media circus, it was actually outside the courtroom. Talk to any New Hampshire reporter who was there. That's it wasn't, more than 20 seconds. It, it wasn't in the courtroom. It was the hallway where she would come in and out. The jurors never saw that. They heard click, click, click from still cameras. You hear that in every trial these days. I do not believe that Pam got an unfair trial. She's in jail where she belongs. But as Toby said, all he knows about the case he learned from watching the movie with Nicole Kidman, and that was the point that documentary made, is that the public, there was a mix-up between fiction and reality that did work its way into the courtroom. All I know about the Lindbergh case is what I've seen on TV. <laughs> 
Okay, I guess we will end it there. Laura Bricker is a former reporter, true crime writer. Toby Ball is a crime fiction writer, noir author. Thank you both so much for taking some time out of your busy day to chat with us. Thank you. Thank you. And Kevin, thank you so much as always. We're going to continue this when we get home, Rebecca. (laughs) I'm sure we will. You can learn more about all the crime writers, including links to all of our books at our website. The address is crimewriterson.com. There you can also hear all of the episodes we've recorded. Find my email address if you want to send me a note. And yep, donate a few bucks to keep this podcast coming your way. You can now do it on PayPal. Leave a review on iTunes if you listen there. It makes a difference. We appreciate it. I'm Rebecca Lavoie, and this is Crime Writers on Serial. We will catch you later. Bye.